0: Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, August 16th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, it's a very Mariney type of show, as we've got two Marine Corps veterans showing up today. Well, calling in anyway. We're going to have Joe Schinelli, Executive Director of AMVETS. They've completed the AMVETS National Convention, took place down in Orlando. going to get a recap of everything that took place there and talk to him about some new things going on over at the VA with them apparently not being able to cover all their bills. Also, Secretary Wilkie making some changes over there. And we're also going to talk to him about that military parade the president talked about that was included in the NDAA. So looks like it's going to happen AmVets, to my knowledge, is the only one of the big VSOs who's really supporting that parade. We're going to talk to Joe about exactly why that is. But before we talk to Joe Cinelli, we're going to talk to Marine Corps veteran Derek Sisson. Derek is the founder and CEO of America Bourbon. We're going to talk to him about how things have been going for his bourbon since the last time we talked to him. Jeez, I think it was about a year ago when we talked to Derek. Uh, we're going to find out about how that's gone, what they're doing, and they've got some big news. They're going to be expanding into some major retailers. Have you ever heard of Walmart? Well, Walmart has heard of America Bourbon. So we'll talk to Derek about that and about the issue of tariffs and how that might affect veterans looking to get into industries like, you know, becoming uh, the producer of fine spirits like bourbon. There's a lot going on around all of this, and I look forward to talking about that with Derek in just a little bit. But first, I look forward to talking to super producer Jake Hughes. Good morning, Jake. How are we doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? i'm okay and you know what sometimes uh when i'm not here exactly when i'm supposed to be you send me a text message like hey are you coming in today what's up what's the deal
2: i in my defense i usually wait until it's getting like okay we need to start the show pretty soon
0: (laughs) thanks mom uh so we are usually in here and ready to go and get our stuff done but every once in a while uh, i hit traffic is essentially what happens i have to drive 30 miles, but 30 miles between two major cities, as anyone knows, can take a long time. I don't sleep through my alarm, though. That's something that, you know, early in my Navy career, I think was the last time I really slept through my alarm. Hey, there's Tony Dungy going into the uh, 106.7, the fan studios outside of our studio. Uh, so this morning, I wake up at my normal time. I look at the clock and I'm like, okay. And normally, when I wake up, I have to go over and turn off my alarm. My alarm plays the Hartford Whalers goal song, Brass Bonanza, which is a glorious, beautiful, and horribly annoying tune. (laughs) And I notice it's not playing. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Why is it not playing? Did I already turn it off? Did I wake up and fall back asleep again? No, it turns out my phone had died before I went up to bed. I plugged it in and was planning on, you know, when it gets up to like 2%, I'll turn it on and then I'll make sure the alarms are set and all that stuff. I fell asleep before I ever turned it on. I woke up with no alarm at my normal time. That's how much I am into my routine (laughs) right now. But I made it in here. Jake didn't need to worry. He didn't need to send us uh, any texts asking when I was going to get here because I was here right when I planned to be, even though I never set an alarm. Lucky. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to try that again. I'm going to make sure that it's plugged in again. Of course, uh, some of you may know if you've already uh, watched today's first segment on Facebook, we go live on Facebook at 7.15 a.m. every morning. The nature of the show and how everything works technologically means the show itself uh, doesn't get broadcast until 8.15 on the Radio.com app and ConnectingVets.com slash listen, but We actually record that first segment at 7.15, and you can now watch it on Facebook. All you have to do is go to the Connecting Vets Facebook page, at Connecting Vets. You can follow us, and I believe when uh, someone goes live, you can actually get notifications of when they go live so that anytime somebody goes live, you'll get a notification for it. We're going to be doing it every day at 7.15, so if you need that notification, great. Otherwise, hope you tune in and see uh, just a lot of beauty. I think is what yeah, people are looking for. Look at this face. Just yeah. Can, can, just check yeah. out Jake. See what he's doing style-wise, whether it's a, an Iron Maiden T-shirt or a, uh, a Iced Earth T-shirt or a, uh, what, what what else do you have? Oh, a Ranger Up T-shirt, grunt style. Uh, there's a lot of fashion things that you can, t- tips of yep. the trade that you can pick up from us.
2: That's a yeah. question like, you know, oh my gosh, who are you wearing? Uh <laughs> Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. uh, Bruce Dickinson original.
0: (laughs) There you go. Well, there are a lot of things taking place around the military and veteran community, and that's what we do in this first segment is talk about those. We've got a great story up on ConnectingVets.com about a Green Beret that a lot of people probably don't know anything about, but they know about something that he did. He was a member of the ODA that basically found Marcus Luttrell in Afghanistan. Marcus Luttrell, the SEAL, the lone survivor. Uh, he is, uh, of course, well-known to the public, but some of the guys who went over there and risked a lot to bring him back, uh, including Master Sergeant David Bo Ramsey, uh, people don't know as much about them. And Bo, uh, it, it's it's a sad story of what's happened to Bo. He Of course, was uh, retired from the Green Berets, was an amazing Green Beret, was a team leader, again, of the detachment that found uh, Marcus Luttrell in Afghanistan and uh, were part of the amazing group that risked everything to get him back uh, from the Army's 3rd Special Forces group. Bo was hit by a truck while riding his motorcycle. Oh, no. He was coming back from a motorcycle event, a truck or a car, I think it was a truck, didn't stop at a red light uh, and basically slammed into him, and he's essentially... uh, paralyzed. Right now, he's got an open book fracture of the pelvis, spinal cord impingement, fractures in his foot, ribs, and his right elbow is broken and completely disrupted. I mean, this is this is a guy who's as tough as they come, and he's getting through it the best he can, but they need help to cover everything and all the medical bills and everything that's going to go on there. Um, they're going to make progress with everything they believe. With, uh, you know, whatever funds they're able to raise, they'll be able to hopefully speed up that progress. Well, Marcus Luttrell, got a link to their GoFundMe page and tweeted it out. And in the space of a day or two or something like that, they went from raising a couple thousand dollars to raising in the six digits. They went well over a $100,000. Wow. So this is someone who's very important to Marcus and Melanie Luttrell, obviously, and someone who's going through a tough time. Um, you know, spinal, impi- spinal cord impingement, that's something that – I believe they can work on. It's not as though the spinal cord was completely severed, in which case uh, that typically means that you're paralyzed for the rest of your life. But uh, they've certainly got a lot going on, and they need to heal him, and the money helps with that. You can go to ConnectingVets.com to find out more about that. So it's actually been a month that they've had the GoFundMe page up, and $105,000 is what they've raised. They originally had a $15,000 goal. So that's fantastic. And good on Marcus Luttrell for, again, recognizing those who aren't at the center of the story but are certainly a large part of the story, like David Bo Ramsey. And, again, you can go to ConnectingVets.com. Uh, there, it's right on the top of the main page there. You can find the link to the GoFundMe page. Um, it's really a, a story that's a dark one that's getting lighter because of what people who support veterans are doing for the uh, the family of Bo Ramsey. Here's an interesting thing that I noticed last night, Jake, and I had to share this out on my Facebook page. I've told you what my favorite duty station was, right? Yes. It was a couple of the Keflavik Iceland. There you go. Uh, Here's the interesting thing, Jake. I stayed at a barracks on Keflavik. No one's allowed to live out in town when we had the base in Keflavik, which closed down 12 years ago, 2006. It was part of the contract, the NATO contract with the Icelandic government. No one lives out in town. Everybody lives on the base. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's the way things uh, were worked out originally. Well, it turns out if I'd like to, I can actually go back and stay in my old barracks room. Really? And in the meantime... Other people are staying in my old barracks room and my friend's old barracks rooms and hanging out in the lounge in the barracks and doing things in places all over the base because there's now the base hotel and hostel at the former naval air station, Keflavik, Iceland. (laughs) And it uh, gives people a taste of United States military life on uh, the rock in the North Atlantic. Uh, You know, Keflavik, Iceland was an interesting place. It's near the airport, the international airport. If you fly into Iceland, you're landing on the airstrip that was uh, attached to the airstrip, where the F-16s from the Air Force units that were stationed, there were taking off, where the P-3s from the Navy units that were there were taking off. And the buildings just kind of went abandoned and no one used them after the U.S. left in 2006. Eventually, the Icelanders, who are a, uh, a people who know how to use things and know how to uh, get the best out of everything because, hey, in the wintertime, sometimes they have like 45 minutes of light depending on the day. And in the summertime, yeah, they have like 23 hours of of, of light out there. So. They make use of things because they have a, a small area, and also a lot of it is just lava rocks. There's not a lot of great uh, places to to have things and do things and grow things. A lot of the island is just kind of barren, beautiful but barren they've now started reusing all of those facilities on the base. So you've got the base hotel and hostel. Apparently the old aircraft hangars are being used for concerts and things like that out there. So, you know, where the F-16s and, and P-3s were based, that's now they've got some DJs in there pumping the latest <laughs> EDM <laughs> tunes, which is kind of funny. I, I remember going to one concert there. Tracy Lawrence, a country superstar, came up and performed back in 1999, 2000, somewhere in that time frame, but just fascinating to look at this article and I saw it on Stars and Stripes where they've got pictures of the barracks that have now had uh, some some color added to them. When I was there they were these kind of uh, off-white concrete buildings uh, with, with some sort of texture on the outside so they weren't just like flat concrete and they had roofs that uh, rotated. You had one building with a red roof, one with a green roof. Well, the roofs are still the same color. The, the off-white coloring of the buildings is kind of almost khaki color is still there. But then on the edge of these barrack buildings, they've actually done a camouflage paint style. And the two that are in this picture, one of them is uh, a blue and white type of camouflage. The other one is a red and white type of camouflage. And looking at the pictures, I think... I'm fairly certain that one of the two buildings in there, the closest one to it that they have on starsandstripes.com, is actually the barracks that I stayed in. Because looking at what I see behind it, which is uh, some of uh, the the other housing that was over near the—it's where the Air Force lived. It, it just—it it fits. I think it's the right spot. So it's just amazing to me that a place that I was paid to live at, people are now paying to live at. <laughs> now, you might think, oh, my God, what, what kind of psychopath would want to stay in a military barracks? Those were actually some of the nicest barracks I was ever in. They were fairly new when I got there. They were still building buildings at that point. They were seven years away from the uh, the base closing down, and there was no there was no real prediction that that was going to happen in two thousand six. That all happened kind of kind of quickly, uh, and the Icelandic government I think regretted it to some extent because their economy collapsed right around two thousand seven ish. And they lost uh, money that was coming in from the military, money that was coming in from uh, people going out in town. You know, I was out in town every weekend. I'd go down to Reykjavik if I didn't have duty and uh, and hang out down there and spend money. And boy, do you spend money in Iceland. It was an expensive <laughs> place back then. Talking like nine, ten bucks for a beer out in town, and more Whoa. than that for an alcoholic uh, a cocktail or something. You know how I know that because I never bought an alcoholic cocktail because <laughs> they were too expensive. But the beer and uh, and the other things they had over there very, very my first European experience really. Uh, and now people in Europe or Americans going over there will get to have a little bit of an American experience. And what the uh, the reporter, Martin Egnash, from Stars and Stripes found when he went over there, what they've left up in the barracks is pretty interesting. You know how when you go into a barracks, you have like the command information board that yeah. has like all the... The new regulations for the building and all the things that the CEO wants to put out to everybody—they left that up there, with everything in place as it was in 2006. Like the alcohol policy, like we need to deglamorize alcohol, <laughs> and also, you know, when you're allowed, what you're allowed to bring out into town and what you're not, because there were a lot of restrictions on that when I was there. the The biggest thing, the biggest smuggling issue—it's a big crime wave in Iceland, man. People trying to smuggle turkeys out from the base. The monsters turkeys because turkeys are not available in Iceland at the supermarket and people wanted turkeys. Well, guess what? We had them at the base commissary. You could go buy a turkey for, I don't know, what does a turkey talk cost? $20, $25? nice like big that. turkey yeah. like that. You could go out in town and sell it for like 100 I mean, people were actually smuggling turkeys out. So when you would leave the base, they would do random checks and they would inspect your car. How random they were, I think if you looked like a younger single person, you were more likely to get inspected than a family. But uh, they did inspect uh, just about everybody over there at one point or another. You were also limited on how much alcohol you could bring out into town. You could bring like a six pack per person or something like that. Again, it was very expensive out in town. So what some people would do is kind of tailgate. Like they bring a, a six pack per person, go out there and uh, everybody, but the driver drinking in the parking lot downtown and then go into the bars so that they didn't need to the club so that they didn't need to spend <laughs> as much on their beer or whatever in there. But again, my favorite duty station, I loved it. There Made a lot of uh, great people there, both on base and off base, just had a great time. I can't, I can't stress enough how what a great place it was for a. Uh, how old was I when I got there? I was like nineteen when I got there. Turned twenty. Was twenty one when I left. I was there for just about two years. Just a great place to be. In a place that now, if I go back, you know, I'm, I'm I probably wouldn't do it now. I'd want to stay in downtown Reykjavik now if I were visiting. And actually, former guest of the show Kelly Kennedy, I think, is over there right now, uh, from what I've been seeing on uh, on social media. But maybe someday when I'm old. And I'm really reminiscing about oh the good old days in Iceland. I want to stay in the bed, you know. I'll wheel my my walker up into my old <laughs> barracks room, be like, oh yeah, there's that spot on the wall from where from where I spilled uh, <laughs> Spaghettios or whatever the case was. <laughs> was like, yep, this is this is definitely the place. But uh, just interesting that. Things can be reused. I mean, when we think of, of military bases shut down from BRAC and everything, you normally think of it just being a waste where not much of it is used or it's only occasionally used. Think about the, uh, the base out on, oh, man, I'm blanking on the name. There's an island. Uh, it's like in San Francisco Bay. Um, there's an There used to be a navy base there that uh, was a big bustling base that shut down years and years ago. I think in the 80s or 90s they shut it down, and now uh, it's it was used for like the show MythBusters. That's where they do a lot of their driving things. Is it had an airstrip and they could drive all the way down there. But other than that, it just seemed to be kind of vacant and just kind of a waste of space. It's nice to hear about a place, uh, particularly one that I. Like uh, enjoyed my time at being reused in this way. It's just it's kind of neat that it's happening. First, I laughed like kind of idiots paying to stay in my old barracks room. Uh, sorry about the smell in there, by the way, folks who are <laughs> visiting the base hotel and hostel in Iceland. You back. left some some like
2: padded or packaged meat in the air conditioning vents, didn't you?
0: Yeah, fish. I would go. I mean, that's basically what they they have fish and lamb in Iceland. So I had some lamb dogs. That's what they make their hot dogs out of and fish. And I just yeah, I put it up in the vents. That's where I would store it. And I forgot the day that I left. Yeah, so uh, I just thought it was kind of cool to see that they're reusing something like that. Speaking of reusing and civilian use of military issues, Jake, if I were to tell you that there's a uh, a store, like a retail store, so maybe a little bit hipsterish, that's selling something that you had to have with you. Most, if not all, times in the United States Army, what would you guess is the thing that they are selling at this hipster retail store, a clothing store, to narrow it down for you, Urban Outfitters specifically? PT belts. You've read the story, haven't you? No, I just know that in the (laughs) Army, everywhere you go, you need a PT belt. Urban Outfitters is selling what they're calling the Racho Reflective Physical Training Belt. At Urban Outfitters. Military Times has this story. Uh, J.D. Simpkins and Charles E. Panzino have that one up there. Now, here's the thing, Jake. So I had a glow belt when I was uh, an individual augmentee getting ready to go over to Afghanistan. Almost never wore the thing. And the good thing is most people in the Army have no idea what Navy ranks are. So because I was a Petty Officer First Class, which has an eagle above three chevrons, uh, they thought I was some sort of super colonel. So everybody just kind (laughs) of left me alone.
2: (laughs) I laugh, but it's probably true. Oh, I
0: Dude, in Afghanistan, anytime I was on uh, Camp Marmal in Afghanistan or Camp Span, which is where most of the Tenth Mountain people were, uh, I was just constantly getting saluted. Sometimes I'd just ignore it. Sometimes I'd salute him back. And sometimes I'd, I'd give a little lesson. Like, hey, private, come here. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it would be like, seriously, Sergeant, you don't know the difference between <laughs> an officer and enlisted. But uh, how much would you guess that this glow belt that you were issued, you would charge for if you were urban outfitters?
2: Well, I know if you go to the, the base or the PX, you can get a PT belt for probably
0: around uh, eight bucks. Yeah, if you have to replace it, right? I mean, you get issued one, but you, yeah. you might have to replace one. I just saw a bunch of guys with them on uh, driving into work yesterday, early morning. I'm guessing maybe some sort of ROTC or something cuz they weren't in uniform. One of them was wearing jeans while they were running around. It was kind of kind of odd group, but they had glow belts on, so I'm like, "Ah, okay, this is this is probably related to the military in one way or another." So you're saying under $10 is that what yeah. do you think Urban Outfitters would sell it for considering that the exchange, you know, it's a required item so they're going to lower price on it. What do you think Urban Outfitters would charge for a glow belt?
2: I'm going to guess because it's probably some way marked up, probably about 20 bucks. Keep going. Thirty bucks. Yep. What? No. Thirty dollars, <laughs> and it
0: is—it's a glow belt. That's all it is. It's—it's it's got the plastic uh, clip on the front for it, and it is—it uh, is really just something. I mean,
2: is it, is it at least one of the good ones that's got like a fabric in the back,
0: or is it one that's just a straight piece of plastic? I don't. I can't tell. It looks like the straight piece of plastic. So here, I'll show you. And anybody who's watching on Facebook will probably be able to say, "Oh, I think I just cut our monitor." Oh, there it comes back. See that? Yeah, that look. That looks like it might be the one of the ones that has a little bit
2: of the fabric in the back because those are the good ones. They're a little more sturdy and thick. Yeah, yeah, those are the good ones. The thirty-dollar ones. Yeah, well, they're not worth thirty <laughs> dadgum bucks.
0: Thirty dadgum bucks, ladies and gentlemen. Texas is in the house. Uh, this is I, I understand that some people want to have um different military things. oh goodness, gracious. and then the uh <laughs> what now? There's a picture on the bottom of uh, fifty cent Curtis Jackson in a military uniform that can uh I only be described as uh as jacked up to the highest degree. Like you want to talk about stolen valor. He's got a United States Marine Corps Gunnery Sergeant, uh, dress blue top on, medals that are all sorts of out of whack ribbons that I don't even recognize most of the ribbons, so I don't even know what most of them are, and uh navy officers. Uh, looks like a captain's cover on or maybe even an admiral's cover based on the scrambled eggs on the front. It's it's interesting that people, again, this kind of ties into the hotel in Iceland. Like, people want a little bit of that military thing, you know? You can advertise that glow belt and be like, oh, this is just like the military uses. Yes, and complains about. And then you had, didn't we just have a general who was like, why are we wearing these glow belts? We just have one of the, the four stars in the army questioning why they wear those things in the middle of the day. He probably got replaced. Yeah, he's probably, well, it's <laughs> time for you to retire. Yeah, <laughs> how, how dare you? And you every, don't
2: question the PT belt.
0: And every sergeant major in the Army had an aneurysm when they yeah. read that tweet that was out there. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. That What's was, next? Uh,
2: Privates walking on grass? That was, yeah,
0: hands in pockets? I, come on. None of this stuff is allowed. Total anarchy. And there's reasons for that. <laughs> that's that's the one thing that can actually get a four star removed from command without Congress getting involved is uh, if he besmirches the glow belt. Yep. It's a little known but it's in there. It's a uh, You joke, but it's, it's army not order. a joke
2: in the army. <laughs> it's army order.
0: You know, typically when we uh, when we talk about, you know, Article 4613-3 alpha, TAC 3 alpha, let's use the actual navy term there. Uh, that's actually rule 1 in the army book. It's like the first commandment. Thou shalt not question the PT belt yep. regardless of time of day or anything like that. I remember getting to Afghanistan and having some some soldier tell me, like, you, you need to wear that when you're on base. I was like, we're on a base surrounded by mountains with people in those mountains that would like to kill us, and you want me to make myself more visible at distance? That's okay. I'll take the chance of getting run over by an MRAP which by the way weren't typically moving very quickly on base. No. So I always thought I'd be able to get out of the way. But again, it is kind of like the uh it is kind of like the the Iceland issue where you have people just wanting a taste of that that military life and wanting to do it whether they're willing to pay for it or not. Hey, that's up to them. But $30 for a glow belt, let me tell you right now. If you go into Urban Outfitters and you're not a veteran or a military member and you see these, these glow belts sitting in there. I'm going to tell you right now exactly what you need to do. Put your wallet away contact someone who is in the United States army and they'll sell you one for like half the cost of that and they'll still be making quite a profit off of yeah. it.
2: Hell they'll probably give you one for free cuz they got a guarantee they got like 5 one from each unit cuz well, cuz this is the thing I have the normal yellow PT belt. Yeah. I also have a red one with a white stripe from the 3rd US from 3rd Armor Cavalry Regiment. That's got the the bug on there. It says Brave Rifles and everything. So sometimes <sighs> units will actually have Custom PT belts.
0: You could sell that one for a good $200, $300 based on the pricing I'm seeing on oh, this yeah. one from Urban Outfitters. I mean, it's interesting that this company is marketing that of all things. Something that is remarkably unpopular for anyone below E9 in the Army. Uh, you know, if you're an E9, you basically sign a contract saying that you love the glow belt for life uh, and that you will protect it uh, on equal level with the Constitution and uh, your your soldiers and all that stuff. I mean... Everybody knows that. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing taking place out there. And there's a lot more interesting stuff going on. And the best way to be kept abreast of all of it, visit ConnectingVets.com. That's our website. It's filled out by a team of veterans working tirelessly every day to make sure that you get the information you need, the information you want, and the information you think we need to know. Mark-Paul Gosselar saying he's open to a say by the Bell reunion. Not the kind of thing that we're going to do. Nope. But we are going to do things like... The story on Sergeant Bo Ramsey. Green Beret now going through a rough time and they're raising money for him. And Marcus Luttrell is helping out with that. A lot of great stuff. So do that and follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Still to come on today's show, up next, Derek Sisson, United States Marine Corps veteran founder and CEO of America bourbon. He's going to talk to us about how everything's going with America, their plans for expansion and being available nationwide within the next few months. We're going to talk to him about that. And then later on in the show, Joe Schinelli, executive director of Amvets. He's going to join us and talk about a lot of things, including why Amvets is very supportive of the military parade. That's going to take place at some point in the fairly near future. It's the morning briefing, Eric day and Jake Hughes back after this.
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets.
0: Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And you know why we do it? It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and just as importantly, knows what it's like to have taken it off that very last time. So each and every day, our team of veterans is working tirelessly to produce content that we think can inform, educate, maybe even entertain you, and you can find it all at ConnectingVets.com. And of course, the best way to be kept abreast of what's going up on the website Visit us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little tap on your phone or click of your mouse, and you will be living your best veteran life. And maybe you'll be tapping on that phone or clicking on that mouse while you sit there with a nice adult beverage, a cocktail, or, well, just a straight spirit. And we're about to talk to a Marine Corps veteran who is the founder of a very popular spirit that continues to grow in popularity. I'm speaking of America Bourbon and the founder and CEO of that brand of liquor, Mr. Derek Sisson. Derek, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well, and it's great to talk to you again. It's been a long time since we talked to you, uh, quite a few months, I think, since the last time we talked about Merica Bourbon. So for those who maybe didn't hear the previous interview, let's do a quick recap of exactly who Derek Sisson is. So as I mentioned, Marine Corps veteran, but you fill in the blanks on exactly what that means, when you joined, where you served, and what you did while you were in the Corps.
1: So um, I served in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I was a member of Second Force Reconnaissance Company and uh, Second Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina.
0: And of course, serving in that time frame, uh, you know, you got out in the early 90s. And after you got out, what was the career trajectory for Derek Sisson? You go from being a Marine to being a civilian that next day. What do you remember about it? And what was the uh, what was the key to you finding your way?
1: You know, I, 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 during that time period, um, unfortunately, we didn't have the kind of support within that community that uh, is available now. Um, so it was it was it was a bit of a tr- uh, tough transition. I mean, you're trying to figure out: Am I going to get out and, and you know punch a clock, whatever that looks like? Am I going back to school on the GI Bill, or am I going to try to you know somehow find a niche and build my own business?
0: And Derek. When you talk to you know the young marine who's getting out the young sailor, soldier, airman, and through your work that you do, I imagine you're running into a lot of veterans on a regular basis. What recommendation do you give or would you give to someone who's getting out and trying to to find their way in life post service
1: you know i would i would I would tell them to try to have a plan before you get out. you know it's one of the things that we didn't do in our generation, at least I didn't do in a lot of my uh, the guys I served with, um, I would have that plan. What exactly do you want to do when you get out? And it doesn't have to be um, written in stone, but at least to have some sort of plan. Um, the second part of that is I would say, you know, walk before you run. Whatever business you decide to go into or whatever path you lead, there's so many people within that business or educational process that have so much that have been there, done that, have so much free advice for you. So I would seek out mentorship, and I wouldn't try to overwhelm myself with too much. I would try to basically eat one slice of the piece of the pie at a time. I think some some of these young veterans, you know, they're so passionate and they're so excited when they get out, and especially as far as the path to becoming an entrepreneur. But you know, the, it, there, there's no, no better teacher than experience, right? I mean, just, you know, learn your industry, learn whatever you're in before you, you know, jump in. Certainly financially, I would give them, you know, learn, learn the business as best you can before you start dumping, you know, your entire savings into it.
0: And you know what? That's something that we've heard from some of the most successful entrepreneurs out there. Uh, it makes me think of Assault Forward, the guys who've made the uh, the flag lapel pin, the, uh, the Army-style assaulting forward flag. They started off making 200 of them, and since putting in the money for just those 200 pins and seeing how it would go, testing out the market, they've not had to put any more in, and now they're making money on that. So it's kind of, you know, as you said, not biting off more than you can chew. That's incredibly important, particularly for entrepreneurs, isn't it?
1: It is. It is. Um, that's, that's, you know, being undercapitalized and not knowing your industry properly is, you know, is so many times a kiss of death. Um, you know, so the, the two biggest uh, pieces of advice that I would give to any transitioning veteran are those two.
0: And we're speaking to someone who transitioned from the Marine Corps and has now transitioned into, well, the founder of America Bourbon. He is Derek Sisson, United States Marine Corps veteran. And Derek, the first time we talked to you, it was shortly after the launch of Merica when things were kind of still just starting out for it. Since then, that's changed just a little bit. People have probably seen you on Fox News and other places. So, you know, in the last nine months, I think, or so, since we first talked to you, tell us how things have gone for America Bourbon for Derek Sisson.
1: Well, I tell you, you know, um, we've been incredibly blessed. Uh, we're over, uh, in over 40 states now. Um, we just recently got on the fall module with Walmart, so they'll be um, pick, picking us up um, across the country. And we also are launching within the naval stations um, at Great Lakes on August 30th. And then, of course, we, we're, we're continuing to sell online uh, we've been picked up by the largest distributor in the United States, Southern Glaciers in New York, California, um, I think Illinois, I, I, I think at least 10 states at this time, and that continues to grow. So it's just been an incredible, uh, blessed year, and, and uh, it, it continues to grow. Um, We're going to be introducing uh, rye um, with, uh, probably within the next six months as well, so to add to the, the product line.
0: Wow, that's good to hear, and as someone who likes to use rye when I'm making an old-fashioned or a Manhattan specifically, uh, that's very cool, and it kind of shows how much America uh, Bourbon has grown that now you're, you're branching out. That's oftentimes how you can tell that a liquor company has been successful. When they have an initial offering and it does really well, that's when they start putting the second one out there. Was it always your plan to do that, or was this something that just kind of unexpectedly came up uh, through the success that you found with America Bourbon?
1: It was always a plan. Um, I believe in a singular focus in any business initially. So all our focus was, of course, on the the America Bourbon itself. Um, we we just we, we just continued to to reach out through distributors. Uh, we 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 knew we had the right price point. We knew we had the right um, packaging for functionality, and we just we we, we we just had a strong belief in the product and and the name itself and and so we you know we like i said we were really um you know five i guess i could kind of go back to um a little bit of my past in the industry i've been in the industry for about a decade um i was a distributor for five years and that was almost like a harvard education a liquor industry what to do where to source compliance um you name it i mean everything involved in the liquor industry you learn as a distributor and so it's not an overnight um, success story um, in, any, in, any, in any way at all. It, it was it, on-the-job training. There was that mentorship that was a learning by mistakes, uh, building relationships that brought us to the, the original singular focus of the brand. So when I was ready to start the brand after five years as a distributor, we, we pretty much knew the direction we wanted to go as far as our demographics. We already had all the sourcing in place, um, compliance, And we had already built somewhat of a network within the industry.
0: And that, of course, is an important thing to have and gave you a little bit of a leg up when starting Merica Bourbon. And we're speaking with founder and CEO of Merica Bourbon, Derek Sisson. Derek, you know, when you look at the liquor industry, I mean, just walk into your average liquor store and there are so many brands of each variety on the wall. I think for someone who has the idea that, you know, I'd like to get involved in that industry, it might be a little daunting to think, well, all these brands are already out there. What more can I bring to the table? Uh, Is it something that you would recommend to people out there who think that they do have an interest with it or is it something that can be just too difficult without the previous experience that you had
1: i think you know if i had a nickel for everybody i've seen fail in the liquor industry even within the state of texas i'd already be a very rich man (laughs) um yeah I, i i would i would it's one of those industries you know for many different reasons one is it's so highly regulated Right, just learning the compliance side of things. And, and, and of course, all the rules are different state by state. Um, and then, you know, the, the unseen cost of, of some of that, um, the unseen cost of trying to market a product. I, like I, I mentioned earlier, I would recommend um, learning the industry as best you can. Try to eat one little piece of the pie at a time. Um, get a job. Um, if you want to be in the liquor industry, I would try to find a job with one of the leading distributors. Um, even if you don't own a distribution company like I did, at least you can learn, the really learn the ins and outs with on-the-job training. And I would do that for a while before I even remotely
0: can
1: start my own brand.
0: Derek, when you look at, you know, the, the, the time since you've started America and uh, things from the outside look fantastic. When I look up and I see you again on Fox News and other places and and doing local television and other national shows, you know, I remember around the holidays, I think you were uh, on a showdown in Texas, maybe, where you were uh, mixing together some mm-hmm. great holiday cocktails, that kind of thing. For everybody, it can it can look uh, uh, fantastic, but on the inside, are there still struggles each and every day, or is everything just turning up roses for you and the team at America?
1: No, absolutely, there's struggles every day. I mean, we, I mean, as, as in Marinecom, we have that. the, the, the always say, you know, it, uh, overcome and adapt. And as an entrepreneur, that's a pretty good rule in general. But it's it, and within the liquor industry, it's it's constantly a moving target. Um, you know, the, the grind's still out there. I mean, people just don't pick up your product because they like you. They pick up your product because they think they can sell it. Um, they think you, you have the right marketing behind it, whatever that looks like. But every day, it's, it's, it's a grind. People don't see, just like I mentioned earlier, 10 years in the industry, five years as a distributor, people see see me on Fox and Friends now, but they don't see those five years when you're going, oh, my God, how am I going to pay the rent at this warehouse? And you know, you're making that, another trip to the, the coin machine or whatever that looks like. So, yeah, I mean, there's always those struggles. And I think that's any business. I mean, I, I think if it's ever smelling like roses all the time, then you might have lost a little bit of your hunger, right? And you don't have that same propensity where you're really seeking out growth. There's always going to be challenges with any business, and certainly with one that's that's so regulated as, as a liquor industry.
0: You know, for me, when everything seems to be going right, that makes me even more aware of there must be something going wrong, and I just need to look a little bit harder to find it. Uh, Of course, there's one thing that uh, just by the fact that you are the founder and CEO of a bourbon company that's affecting you and everyone else within that space in the industry. I mean, right now I'm looking at a story from Forbes.com about trade war tariffs hitting bourbon around the world. Of course, basically the European Union, and as a European studies with uh, uh, a focus on trade minor in college. I know a little bit about this stuff. The EU has decided to put a 25% tariff, essentially an import tax, on on bourbon in retaliation for U.S. tariffs imposed on steel and aluminum imports. And this is not something that you, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, had any hand in, but it's something that you now must deal with. So when you first heard about the possibility of these tariffs coming from the EU, how did you view that? And, and is your product available over there yet? And does that make any difference?
1: A lot of the liquor industry and the brands that they enjoy so much aren't exactly owned by American companies. For example, Wild Turkey is owned by a, an Italian company. Uh, Jim Beam's owned by a Japanese company. So we, you know, we sold domestically. So those tariffs don't really affect us at this point in time. But those larger companies, like two of the brands I just mentioned, somehow they're going to have to pay pass those those tariffs, uh, the rise in tariffs on to consumers. It's interesting because, um, for example, a lot of your leading brands, a lot of people don't realize, are owned by foreign companies or companies in the EU. For example, Wild Turkey's owned by an Italian company, um, Jim Beans owned by a Japanese company, which isn't in the EU but it's still foreign owned. But um, even Budweiser is owned by a, a, a company within the EU. So, uh, you know, we, we sell domestically, so that wouldn't really affect us, so to speak. But those larger companies, some of those more established popular brands that I just mentioned, that they're going to have to pass that tariff on to the consumer some, somehow. So I don't know how that's all going to pan out, but it's certainly going to raise the prices.
0: Yeah, and and bourbon is one of those quintessential American products, you know, developed over here. It does surprise some people when they learn about companies like ImBev or Diageo or other companies Mm -hmm. that own uh, these conglomerates that have kind of bought up companies uh, in the way that conglomerates do. You kind of think of bourbon as, one, being made in Kentucky, which, no, that's not always the case. When I was living on Long Island, they were making bourbon up there in New York. Uh, But it is a very American product. Do you think that's why it was targeted for these technologies? Tariffs because of its ties to America, and I mean, what bourbon could be more tied to America than America bourbon?
1: I think. I think certainly. I mean, you know, the, right now the popularity with with bourbon, I think, for, for the first time in a decade, it's it surpassed um, vodka as far as the leading um, selling spirit in the United States. Um, bourbon itself, as, as you had said earlier, Eric, is is the only true American spirit. Um, I can't remember the exact date, within um, the 1960s, Congress actually passed a law where, um, you know, bourbon actually had to be made in America since it's the only true American spirit. Not necessarily Kentucky, but it had to be American-made. And they set some pretty strict guidelines of what that might look like. Um, but back to the popularity, you know, that you could see why some of these larger companies like Diageo and InBev and some of the ones you just mentioned would want to snatch up some of these brands, just because of the, growth, the, the projected growth traje- trajectory, the popularity overseas, um, you know, it's just, a, it's just a very profitable sector of the market.
0: It certainly is. And, and as a small business owner, and this is something that could affect other veteran entrepreneurs, particularly those who get to a level of success where they might consider, you know, exporting their goods to other countries. Does something like this give you pause as far as that possibility of trying to market to Europe or Asia or someplace else like that? Um,
1: it, 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 it does. Um, I It's... It, it's still available to do. I have a lot of associates that are moving product. For example, in China, um, bourbon is extremely popular, believe it or not. Um, but it you know they, I, I'm not sure if China's raised the tariffs. I know they have on a lot of other goods.
0: They have, yeah. Um, I believe sure. uh, 25% from them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. from them as well.
1: Wow, I saw them pistachios and I saw you know some of these some of those type of products right now. But is it are they on bourbon already? Uh, American whiskey
0: is among the uh, products that are listed, so I don't think it's specific to bourbon. I think it's all American whiskey now has a twenty five percent tariff as it goes into China. Wow, Uh, at least that's what Forbes is saying. Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, you know we we you know, usually, you know, if, when, when that happens, I mean, obviously it's going to raise the price of the consumers within those countries. Um, but as, 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 you know, a lot of the folks that are drinking bourbon, for example, in China, it's already pretty expensive, right? It's not your average, you know, middle-class person in China is not going to really be going out and buying the America bourbon. It's considered a luxury. So whatever that price increase, um, is I don't think it's going to affect it dramatically as people think it would um, just because the fact that it is a luxury item in these places and in Europe as well. um, You know, usually when somebody's going out and drinking America bourbon, they're going to, you know, they're they're already paying that premium price. I don't know what that fluctuation will look like, but it's definitely going to be there. Um, So as far as our, um, you know, us selling overseas and exporting, I I think it will have a, a, a stronger effect in other areas than a luxury item like bourbon.
0: Yeah. And then you've got places like Turkey. Turkey has imposed a 40% tariff on American imports of whiskey as well. So this is something that's taking place around the world as America bourbon continues to focus on, well, its namesake, America. So, Derek, how many states is America currently available in and when do you think it might be available? And I know it's available online, but when do you think it might be available in stores in all 50 states? Or is that something that you're even uh, thinking about right now?
1: Yeah, I think we'll be available in all 50 states within the next three to four months.
0: Wow, that's pretty soon. That's a pretty good thing. And is that process, is that going to be like another step in the plan? And after you're in all 50 states, I know that's a a distribution issue, but what's the next step in the plan after that?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, the rye, we're coming out with the rye. And so, you know, at that point in time, we'll continue to market as hard as we can, um, the the America brand itself Um, but then we're going to try to obviously add SKUs to that particular brand and that namesake Um, so the rye and then we're looking into the future probably um, within the next year to do a 12 year old out of Kentucky and then um, some innovative uh, brand innovative packaging on the 1.75 liter Um, gonna do a box most likely Wow, uh, We already started working on the patented process and so forth on a, uh, a boxed spirit that will be um, most likely camouflaged
0: <laughs> <laughs> that
1: you can take, <laughs> that you, uh, as shocking as that may seem, but, uh, you know, where you can take the festivals and while you're out boating, anywhere glass isn't permitted, uh, deer stands, um, you know, it just kind of fits along with what we're doing and, and our current demographic.
0: Now, I've heard of boxed wine, of course, but I don't know that I've ever heard or seen specifically a boxed spirit like bourbon. Uh, Would you guys be the first ones to do that, or is that something that's already happening?
1: Uh, I believe we'd be the first ones. Um, Fireball has a a boxed uh, spirit right now, but I haven't seen any other ones other than that one. I might be wrong, but um, I think that they have a few over in Europe, maybe, uh, but not in the United States. So you know, right now, you know, as we're moving forward with the folks like Costco or Walmart, it kind of fits into that system, right? When you go into a Costco or a uh, Sam's Club, you see the, pa- the the products are on pallets. They just bring the whole pallet in. So what could fit better than boxes of of uh, whiskey, you know, in a, a Costco or a Sam's Club? So we're trying to do some innovative packaging, add to the skews that we that the skew that we already have, and just continue to to recreate, um, try to be one step ahead on what some of our competitors are doing uh, that are the larger folks like the Diageos and so forth. So we have to overcome and adapt every day. Um, When I was, and we mentioned earlier when we are talking about when, when things are all rosy, When things are rosy, I think that's the time where you really have to put the foot down and say, okay, what can I be doing better, right? Can I be doing like box innovation? Can I be doing this? I don't think there's any time to be stagnant as an entrepreneur,
0: That's certainly something that we've heard from I think each and every successful entrepreneur that none of them ever feels like they've gotten to the point where they can just sit back, kick up their feet, and relax. Derek Sisson, Marine Corps veteran, founder and CEO of America Bourbon is certainly one of those, seeing a lot of success with his product, which I can tell you, and I'm not being paid to say this, I'm saying it out of uh, a true place in my heart, I enjoy it. It's good. I've had it a couple of times now, and it is a good whiskey as a whiskey drinker, and I haven't met too many people who've tried it actually i've met nobody who's tried it who didn't like it and didn't enjoy it Uh, it's really a a popular drink that uh uh, is doing very well out there and i would say is probably doing better than any of the uh veteran-owned spirits that are uh, available around the country now derek if people want to find out more about merica bourbon find out more about you what's the best way for them to go about doing so
1: um, they can go to com without the A, of course. America, like we say in Texas, or um, us, uh, us Marines that thought that's how it was spelled when we signed up, you know, writing it in crayon and what have you. <laughs> and, and then um, we have certainly have a Facebook page and Instagram, so just look in keyword America Bourbon, and you'll find um, my bio there and a lot of information about the product and where to purchase it.
0: Thanks again to Derek Sisson for joining us on the show. And again, you can check out America Bourbon on Facebook, on their website, and all that good stuff. And again, he's one of those people that sets a blueprint for the right way to do it. He learned the industry before he got into the industry on his own as a business owner, you know? He figured it all out so he knew what he was doing when he struck out on his own with his own brand of spirit. And, you know, that's a much better choice than saying, like, well, just figure it out after I start the business. No, no, learn it ahead of time. That's what you want to do. As he said, if you're interested in liquor, join a liquor company before you start your own business. And the same goes for a lot of businesses that are out there. Doing it and figuring it out after you've started reminds me of the kid at Naval Training Center Great Lakes when I was at boot camp, who I would go on to serve with later on. I saw him, oh God, 10, 11 years later, we ended up at the same command, went up to the top of the uh, 25-foot drop into the pool for the swim test, didn't know how to swim, and still jumped into the pool anyway and sunk right to the bottom of the, I don't know what it is, 15, 20-foot pool or whatever it is said, I just kind of figured I'd figure it out when I got in there. didn't work out that way for him. Again, business, kind of the same thing. Well, you're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. And that website right there, ConnectingVets.com, you need to be visiting it every single day, at minimum 30, 40, 50 times a day is what I would say. Uh, and, of course, the best way to be kept abreast of everything that's going up on the site, follow us on facial. Facial media, social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, where we are at Connecting Vets. One last segment in the show today, still to come, and that's Joe Schinelli, Marine Corps veteran and executive director of AMVETS. We're going to talk to Joe about a number of things, including the VA having trouble paying their bills and why AMVETS is basically the only major VSO who's kind of thrown their support behind the military parade proposed by President Trump. Why are they so into the idea? Well, we're going to find out because we're going to talk to Joe Cinelli as soon as we get back from this morning briefing. Back in a moment.
2: Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Vets.
0: Welcome back to the Morning Briefing brought to you by Intercom Radios, ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan and it's what we do. Our team of veterans is working hard every day to get the stories out there that we think can inform, assist, and better the life that veterans and their families and their friends are living out there. So check out the website and of course, follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTubes. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps who currently serves as the Executive Director of American Veterans, better known as AMVETS. He is Joe Schinelli, my former Defense Information School classmate from 20 years ago, and he joins us now once again on The Morning Briefing. Joe, good morning. How are you today?
3: Never better, Eric. Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. I can't complain. It's Thursday, which is uh, next to Friday, so that's a good thing. Of course, for you, you've just returned home after, uh, I think, a little mini vacation with the family that followed up the AMVETS National Convention down in Orlando. Tell me, how did everything go over the week that you guys were down there?
3: It was a very busy, productive week. We were able to hear directly from uh, a few thousand veterans. Uh, at town hall meeting we had, we were able to hear directly from the new secretary of the VA, Robert Wilkie, who gave his first public speech after becoming secretary uh, at our convention. And we also heard directly from the chief of staff of the VHA, which is the Veterans Health Administration. So we were able to hit a lot of wickets, uh, get a lot of important feedback, and we were able to deliver some really important messages as well to our members and, of course, to the senior leaders of the VA. Uh, as well as our legislative agenda for the upcoming year was set by our members. So uh, definitely a lot of work, uh, pretty much around the clock for a week straight there, but well worth it, and it's going to set us uh, on a a good, hopefully on a a very positive road for the rest of the year, really for the next 12 months, since our fiscal year starts September one.
0: When you talk about the legislative agenda being set, what are some of the big-ticket items on there that you think people would be most interested in that AMVETS is going to be focusing on?
3: Sure. Uh, Definitely focusing on setting standards for the community care and helping the administration get this right, uh, ensuring that veterans, when they go into the community uh, for their care if they're not able to get the care that they need and deserve in the VA that to ensure that they are receiving high-quality care, that um, we're able to help the VA be hold these community care providers accountable, uh, it's, which is an interesting thing, and that's something that has been addressed formally yet uh, through policy. So this is something our members are very clear with. They want us to do this, and they have ensured uh, us, that you know, we have their backing, and they've made some investments by authorizing us to do this, and continuing to to grow the, the Heal program that we have. And I think I think it's going to be really important, and a lot of groundbreaking work, uh, a lot of work coming up. But when we are talking about a third of all veterans receiving their care in the community, very important, obviously.
0: Of course when it comes to veterans the va is always going to be heavily involved on the legislative side and really on every side and as we're hearing There's some issues over at the VA where apparently they can't pay their bills on time. I've actually got a story uh, on that on ConnectingVets.com. They're having some issues up in New Hampshire, and it looks like they may be having some issues coming in other places. Uh, How concerning is this for you, this Boston Globe report that the owners of Right at Home stopped caring for 16 veterans as of Friday because they were unable to be paid about $60,000 they were owed by the VA?
3: This is extremely important, and keep in mind the sixty thousand dollars. That's a lot of money to you and me, but it's not a lot of money in the in the medical industry per se normally. But these are small companies, small family-owned companies around the country that are helping facilitate community care, managing networks, and providing the, the medical professionals. And so, it actually does become a lot of money for a small company. And to kind of under give it your audience and understanding of how important this is when secretary Wilkie was with us last week he said quote if we don't get a hold of what we owe Americans who are providing services to our veterans mm-hmm. then the entire system collapses and he's hundred percent right it's that dire that we could have no options in, in places where the VA is unable to provide adequate care if they cannot pay the bills on time and these companies, the small companies and the large companies, the so large companies are owed millions. And we're, we're talking about the VA being behind on payments up to six months where we have TriWest, which is holding hundreds of millions of dollars in, in bills. And they are paying the, their their medical professionals. And then the, that company holds it. And it becomes really, really dangerous because doctors won't want to participate in the community care program anymore which means they won't be able to help veterans which means we're talking about veterans especially in rural areas or highly congested areas where there's a a high density of veterans such as san diego or uh, norfolk and texas and florida and these places where there's a lot of veterans who where the va is overwhelmed or extend rural areas where there just is no va we, we can't let these veterans go without the care they need. And if the VA doesn't pay the doctors and the medical providers, then there, there will be no option. So it becomes extremely serious, and we don't want their system to collapse. The VA has made a lot of inroads lately. They have more than doubled, and they, they now they were filing or, I'm sorry, processing about 70,000 claims a month. They tell us they're now up to about 160,000. So that's a significant increase, but it's still, they still have a long way to go, unfortunately. So what's happening in New Hampshire is just a small window into the, the big problem.
0: A problem that that could certainly start stretching out into other places on this kind of a level where it would become uh, very serious. I mean, how likely do you think that is to happen where we start seeing uh, you know more news stories coming out on things like this? Or is it already happening and we just don't know about uh, all the issues they're having?
3: Yeah, It's been happening for years now, actually. It just, um, it's, it's, it's gaining a lot of momentum because the, the debts that they have, that the VA has, is uh, increasing. And uh, as what's going on with New Hampshire, but these problems were already happening for about a year. And then the VA, and not really through the, the VA's fault, uh, but the federal government, uh, because they use the same things for Medicare and Medicaid, they changed the, the filing process. And they made it more complicated on how to file the, the invoices to the VA. And they did so without, according to this provider in New Hampshire, without notifying them. And so they were already slow in paying. it, And now all of a sudden, the VA starts rejecting, not, not only being slow on the payment, but now they're actually flat out rejecting these invoices because they're not properly filed. So without explanation of why they're not properly filed, so you get through this back and forth where they're trying to, figure out what's wrong. And it simply was, went from putting your last four, your, your four, last four digits of your social security number on the invoice to needing all, uh, um, was it nine numbers in the social security number it had to be on the invoice. And because they didn't know they weren't doing it and they went back and forth and added another month, another month of being tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket, paying your providers. And so, uh, You know, it's bigger government getting bigger and the red tape getting thicker.
0: We're speaking with Joe Schinelli, United States Marine Corps veteran and executive director of AMVETS. You know, Joe, when you talk about uh, government getting bigger or smaller, that's uh, part of the political argument on uh, what the sides uh, agree or disagree on. And here's an interesting thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on, where uh, it looks like they're going to suspend routine military lender investigations, uh, investigations that are supposed uh, to make sure that there's not predatory uh, predatory lending focusing on our service members. Uh, what does AMVETS think about the idea of suspending these investigations?
3: Yeah, this is very worrisome. Clearly, um, we don't see any options here. If you think something's not working, if you think these re- these routine uh, investigations aren't thorough enough, or you think they're happening too often, then we need to see other options and to make sure that veterans are not being taken advantage of. Especially, we have veterans who are elderly, or we have veterans who have disabilities, and. They they need to be protected, and you know it's not hard for uh, someone to, to swindle someone else who isn't in the know. And you know, we we believe this is something that uh, has to be addressed right away. Uh, we have already reached out to the House and the Senate Veterans Affairs Committees to ensure that they provide the proper oversight and don't allow uh, protections that that are necessary be just thrown out so quickly and without explanation that's probably the most concerning part here there was no explanation no telling us how would they make be replaced with or or if you know if, if they're flat out just been wasteful and not not necessary then tell us that and show us that we need that to be demonstrated
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's also the aspect of these lenders that prey on the young military members. I'm sure uh, you remember being uh, a young Marine and seeing your uh, fellow Marines or maybe even yourself going out and coming in with the fancy new car and not realizing the ridiculous (laughs) rates that they were paying on it. Things like that. Credit cards, all that stuff. Uh, Is that something that you think is the government's responsibility to uh, keep people from hurting themselves by making poor financial decisions? Or is that or should that be more on the individual?
3: You know, I could understand the argument saying, hey, these, these people are adults. But the sometimes they're adults, but a lot of times they, you know, I have a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old child. And even though my 19-year-old is technically an adult, he is still very much learning what that really means. And when if he was to have been enlisted right now and gone out there, uh, I certainly would hope that they, there would be some, some strong guidance. And we've seen this before where the government did stop, step in. And with the payday loans, they've, they've done a great job in fact, in, in stopping the payday loans. And, uh, but there's still uh, plenty of red Mustangs and the, the the barracks parking lot <laughs> belonging to all the new E2s who just checked in and you're right. And it's, uh, and you know, bottom line is you have to do what's best for the morale and welfare and allowing, uh, Allowing your veterans or your your young troops, as as it was, to to fall into debt unnecessarily because somebody uh, took advantage of their newness to life.
0: Yeah, or foolishness or stupidity, whatever you want to call it. Exactly.
3: Right. Absolutely. So, yes, I I do think the government has a responsibility to these veterans uh, to ensure that they are connecting them or allowing, you know, because in ways they are endorsing these lenders and so they by doing business with them
0: yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, and I understand the uh, the points from both sides. I understand why are we spending money to help people save money when they could just do the research themselves, and it's their own fault if they don't. Uh, then again, when you talk about elderly veterans and the uh, the young military members who uh, may not be children anymore, but come on, anybody who served any length of time. I, I remember an E1 who worked for me who I knew was having financial difficulties shows up in, in his same uh, not-very-great car but had rims that had to be worth a couple thousand dollars, and you're like, "What are you doing? What are you thinking about?" Sometimes they're not, and sometimes uh, a little bit of help might be a good thing because that that you know financial problem could cause uh, a negative impact on readiness. So I certainly understand both sides. Not sure where I fall on it, but you know, particularly when it comes to the elderly, I'm definitely for it. For the uh, the young sailors, soldiers, marines, and airmen, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I think there might be something good about learning the hard way about things. Let's move on and talk uh, back to the VA specifically. And Secretary Wilkie, who of course just made his first, first public speech at AMVETS National Convention in Orlando, looks like he's rescinded some authority that had been expended extended to some other senior leaders in the VA. Uh, why do you think he did that and what does it mean?
3: So what he did is he issued a memo back on August 3rd, straight when he was first appointed, that... Uh, walked back several decision-making authorities that had been in place for just a little while now, actually, but from the VA chief of staff uh, as well as some of the undersecretaries and well, what the secretary has said is that he wanted to re-examine why these authorities were out there. These are things he believes he should and could be handling himself. And he wants to get a good understanding of what's happening within the VA. Uh, I completely, uh, Agree with him. I think he should be definitely in the assessment mode right now. Um, I, I think he is still working to, to figure out who he trusts in there. And it, if, if there's reasons that the secretary was cut out of some of these things or things were didn't have to get to his desk, he, he wants to know why that was. And uh, he has said, you know, maybe I'll find out that these authorities that have been delegated. Well, for good reason. Maybe they're things he just didn't need to see. But right now he wants to find out everything that's happening within the VA central office uh, at the higher levels. And uh, I applaud him for that. I think it's ambitious and I'm glad he's diving in with both hands.
0: Of course, he's only been in there for a few weeks, but as I understand it, he's starting to fill some of those positions that had been vacant, uh, making some some changes and some installations up at the top. Uh, what do you know about the appointments that he has made, and are these uh, important things that are going to make a difference for veterans?
3: So they will. So he brought over from the Pentagon with him a retired Air Force colonel uh, who had been his chief of staff um, when he was the Under Secretary for Personnel Readiness, uh, Pamela Powers, she came over with him when he became was acting as well, just in the advisory role. And uh, I, I got to meet her, get to know her a little bit. Uh, definitely a very bright person who uh, I think brings a lot of experience over. And I, I think the, the key word here is trust. Uh, Secretary Wilkie trusts her and he's known her for a while. I think it's really important when you come into a new job to have people around you who you can trust and uh, you understand their capabilities and, you know, whether she has weaknesses or not, he, he's going to know those things. So he'll understand who he's working with. Um, interesting thing here though, of course, the uh, Pamela powers or Colonel Powers, she came over and kind of bumped out uh, Peter O'Rourke who had been the chief of staff um, when Wilkie first came over. And then when Wilkie became, Wil- Wilkie stepped aside um, to go through the nomination process, the president named O'Rourke the acting secretary. Uh, and there's been, a a lot of issues that occurred under O'Rourke's short time as acting secretary, Um, the the, um, dust up with the IG where O'Rourke told the IG, Hey, don't forget you work for me. And then, uh, you know, it was interesting in the confirmation hearing, Wilkie said O'Rourke had potentially broken the law during that. Uh, So there was question whether O'Rourke would return to his job as the, as the chief of staff. And he has not, Um, he is now, quote, a senior advisor at the VA. Uh, so we're kind of waiting to see what that means. Um, some some in the circle here thought that our we'll work may be out altogether. Um, it will be interesting to see how that the dynamics of that as it moves forward. Um, they did name a new acting uh, secretary for human uh, resources, uh, Jacqueline Hainsburg. Uh, this is good. This is something that we're all looking to see. There's a lot of vacancies out there. We want to see HR really step it up here to help in the recruiting and the retention process. We know there's still a lot of morale issues throughout the entire VA system for the employees. So we're hoping that uh, Jacqueline can address that. Uh, There's also a new deputy chief of staff, um, which uh, is another person that he was able to bring over from the the Pentagon, someone who you think that uh, Wilkie trusts. So, building a team around him that he can trust is good for veterans. It's good for the VA. Uh, Now we'll see what uh, progress can be
0: made. Of course, there are a lot of positions that need to be filled top to bottom at the VA. I mean, we've heard the number 40,000-plus vacancies in jobs at the VA, but those, those leadership jobs are important because those leadership jobs, uh, it, it basically allows them to realize what they need and start filling the things below them and kind of works its way down there. So uh, how confident are you that we're going to see most of the the, th- the positions that we need filled at the VA actually get filled now that we have someone in charge? Although we had a lot of these vacancies under secretary shulkin so is this going to make that much of a difference in the grand scheme of things
3: um so we did talk about this quite a bit with the vha leadership as well bottom line is the vha doesn't think there's enough medical professionals out there to fill all their vacancies um we, we think they need to be aggressive and get as far along as they can they're already making excuses on this stuff and we understand that they're managing expectations and all those things but um I don't think anyone should expect that they fill all the vacancies. We're talking 30,000 plus vacancies of medical professionals across the country and especially on the mental health side. And we do know there is a national shortage of professionals and the VA needs to have authorization from Congress to pay some of these people higher to be able than they are now because they're not really competitive on the pay scales with the civilian sector. Um, but we, we do want we'll to see some serious progress. We'll see some measurable progress pretty quickly here. So it will be something we're watching closely.
0: We're speaking with Joe Chanelli Executive Director of AMVETS and United States Marine Corps Veteran. Of course, Joe, let's move on to the next thing. And this is one that's got a lot of people up in arms, has since uh, the idea was first floated. Now the funding for it is there. The NDAA authorizes the big national military parade that the president put forth the idea for. And as far as I know, AMVETS is the only VSO, only major VSO anyway, who's been vocally supporting the idea. We've heard some say they don't think it's a great idea. We've heard some say they don't really have uh, an official opinion on it, but why is AMVET so hot on the idea of the military parade?
3: Sure. Well, let me start by with NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. They Not only is the parade authorized, but the military has also been authorized to increase its size. Um, they are going to increase it by at least 15,000 active duty troops. Now, the reason I bring that up first is because we have a recruiting problem. The Army has missed every single recruiting goal it had this year. And the other branches have issues not not as severe as the Army, but uh, the Army, I think, is the the real indicator here. And what this is, in AMBET's opinion, is – A uh, kind of a shortage of of patriotism in our country. We're not, while uh, we we don't think there's people who dislike veterans or dislike the military, um, we just don't think it's, we we think the parade could be used as a recruiting tool, and that's where most of the funding comes from. It comes from from recruiting and from training. Training because they're able to do, if they're going to do flyovers, um, those Pilots who are doing the flyovers will be able to count those hours as training. Uh, and the same as they do if they have a flyover at a sporting event or something like that, so those are training hours. Um, so the funding here, it'll it'll mean less pull-up bars and less water bottles handed out at the county fair. That, that's that's what it's going to mean in the end. And we think that if they do this right, we could have a a lot of patriotism infused into our nation's youth that they're watching it. I remember uh, I think you and I both grew up as Mets fans. Am I right on that one, Eric?
0: You did you are, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so I remember I think it was eighty seven when they uh, won the series. Eighty six. And eighty six, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> the, the parade. And I remember you know, Gary Carter and Hojo and Daryl Strawberry and Doc and you know you see them walk you see them going by you think, Yeah, someday I wanna be up there. Yeah. And that that uh, has a whole lot of kids working extra hard in extra hard at the in cages and you know, it, they really they, they strive for that well I think the same thing could happen if they see these you know soldiers going by like you know someday I want to be up there I want to be that person and you know hopefully that could really help us in the recruiting uh, a study just came out about a week and a half ago that said that 70% of nation's youth will not be able to join the military right because of child uh, obesity because of A lot of health problems, mental health problems, drug use, uh, criminal issues. So our pool for candidates to to join the military to keep our military strong without a draft, that pool is shrinking. So we need to do more. Um, We think the parade is going to happen, whether the VSOs or whether the uh, American public wants it or not. So we're looking to make sure that we can offer some guidance on this to, to ensure it's, it's not about pop and circumstance, but it's rather about instilling patriotism and really a focus on our nation's youth to send that strong message that our, our military is revered and it would be a great career option for them.
0: For those people who would disagree with you and say like, oh, I don't think there's any patriotism issue, it's interesting that we're having this conversation the day after the governor of the state of New York said that America was never all that great uh, to begin with. I mean, for anyone who thinks that there isn't a problem with the way people view this country, just listen to the fact that this is someone who may be a candidate for the presidency in a couple of years saying that he thinks uh, America was never that great to begin with. Just food for thought. Well, we've been speaking with Joe Schinelli, the executive director of AMVETS and Marine Corps veteran a lot going on with AMVETS and again along with their Please Stand campaign their support for uh, the military parade AMVETS is listening to their membership and hearing what they want to say now Joe if people are interested in becoming members if they're looking to find out more about the organization and what you're all about where do they go to do so?
3: Sure. Um, they can always find us online at ambets.org. It's A-M-B-E-T-S dot O-R-G. We're also at ambets HQ on all the social media platforms. And we're also uh, probably coming into a community near you with our town hall meetings for our heel team. So uh, please watch for us in local media as well.
0: There you go. Joe Chanelli from Amvets. Thank you for your time. Also, thanks to Derek Sisson, founder and CEO of America Bourbon, for his time today. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. And don't forget, we broadcast the recording of our first segment live on Facebook, video, and everything. That's at 7.15 every morning. And the show will be back tomorrow at 8.15. Morning briefing is over for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a great day.
2: Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day.
3: Online and all over social media: Facebook, YouTube, Instagram,
2: and Twitter at Connecting Vets.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician.